started this study, a lot of you were, are we going to talk about tongues? Are we going to talk about tongues? Are we going to talk about tongues? I said, yes, but you have to be patient. Now we're talking about tongues. We've been talking about tongues for four weeks now, and some of you are saying, move on, all right. Uh, I ask for your patience. Um, If it's important enough for the Apostle Paul to spend several chapters on, it's good enough to spend several weeks on, because we want to give you a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches. Amen? And so, as we turn to the Scripture for this morning, we'll be looking at verses uh, 13 through 19, 13 through 19. And so I would ask you to stand in honor of God's word this morning as you turn in your own copy of God's inspired and errant word. And um, we'll begin 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is on fruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? Verse 17, for you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. Paul says in verse 18, for I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in the church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Father, we ask you to bless this text to our reading, to our understanding, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we've been looking at the position of tongues here, according to the Apostle Paul, and uh, secondary to that of prophecy. Prophecy is someone who has the ability, the gift to stand up and to speak forth the Word of God in a very clear way. And God enables them to do that. And we've seen where Paul puts the gift of tongues, which is the supernatural ability to speak in a language you do not know. It is a known language. The real gift is. It's a real language. Um, It was in the New Testament. It was in the book of Acts when they spoke in tongues, when they used the gift of tongues to authenticate who they were as the apostles and disciples of of our Lord, uh, they were actually speaking languages because it tells us all the nations that were gathered there. Unfortunately, in Corinth and in the modern-day charismatic movement, they have invented a new kind of tongue. And we mentioned before, as you go through 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I think sometimes Paul addresses the real gift of the gift of tongues, the gift of languages, and then he also addresses the pagan false gift of tongue singular gibberish, ecstatic speech, they called it. And by the way, in the modern day, it's not just Christians that speak in that form, that ecstatic utterance, they call it. 
You have Mormons that do it. You have Catholics that do it. You have Jehovah Witnesses that do it. You have Hindus that do it. You have Muslims that do it. It's a pagan practice. It's not a work of the Spirit of God. And so what Paul saw going on was some of the individuals in the Corinthian church had the real gift of languages, but even then they weren't using them correctly. They were standing up to be seen of men with a very selfish mindset. Look at me. Look at how spiritual I am. And then you fold in the pagan gift that they called the gift of tongues, but it was just this ecstatic utterance. They thought that they had a private line, a private language to speak to their God. It wasn't the God of the Bible because they came out of a pagan culture, and that's what they used to do when they were part of their pagan worship services. They would have this ecstatic utterance. They would lose consciousness sometimes, and they would just just ramble on. Just words would come out of their mouth, but they weren't words. They were just uttering things. And Paul says, and Jesus said, this is not a form of language we need to pray with because it's unintelligible. And that's basically one of the the second point that we covered, the position of the gift of tongues is secondary to prophecy because, first of all, when someone gets up and speaks forth the word of God, everybody can understand what they're saying because they do it in their native tongue. And secondly, the tongues that they were using are unintelligible. Even if it's the real gift, even if you had the gift to supernaturally speak Spanish if you didn't know Spanish, and maybe some of you here speak Spanish, and maybe there was Spanish people here that didn't speak English. And so God would give me an ability to speak Spanish without even knowing the language so that the Spanish-speaking only people could hear the gospel. But then the Bible says very clearly, and we'll get into this, that if it's done in that way, then you have to have someone to interpret what was said so that everybody else can be built up too. And that's what we're going to talk about. So tongues are unintelligible in and of themselves. They always needed the gift of interpretation to edify the body of Christ. And that's why we gather together, to edify the body of Christ. We don't gather together to edify ourselves. And that's where the Corinthians, unfortunately, got it all wrong. And so that brings us kind of to our text today. Not only were they, uh, prophecy is edifying the whole body, but tongues are in non-intelligible, but the third point is that the effect of tongues is emotional. It was emotional rather than mental, and this is what we're going to look at today. And so he starts off in verse 13, and basically he says, therefore, in other words, based on what I just told you, everything I just shared with you, in summary, you can go back and listen to the other messages, but based on all that, He says, one who speaks, notice it's singular, in a tongue, in a form of gibberish that nobody can understand is the idea because there's not many different kinds of gibberish. There's only one kind of gibberish. It's an onomatopoeic word. It's like a car going past and you're going, vroom, goes the car. That's the kind of thing. That's, That's what he's speaking of, just making sounds with your mouth. No one understands. He says, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Now, this is an interesting verse. 
And unfortunately, what the New Testament um, church has done, in some, especially in the charismatic movement, it's, they look at that and say, see, if you, if you speak in, in tongues, then you have to pray for the power uh, to interpret. And so they believe that Paul was saying that he practiced this. I believe Paul had the legitimate gift of tongues. He could speak different languages supernaturally. He was an apostle, after all. But at the same point in time, um, you have to ask yourself, what is he saying here in this verse? Now, we know that the Corinthians were speaking in this private kind of a static communication with their pagan gods, thinking that they were praying to the new God, they were de- or the, the true God. They were deceived. But if you look throughout Scripture, praying in gibberish, praying in, in nonsensical sounds was never the intention, never, of the true gift of languages. It was a perversion that they had created amongst themselves. And so when you look at this verse, you, ha- you can interpret it a couple different ways. I believe Paul is kind of speaking here sarcastically. He's trying to use some humor to get his point across once again because he's gotten his point across time and time again. They still haven't gotten it. So he said, let me try a different angle. Therefore, based on everything I just told you, if you're going to have somebody pray and speak in this gibberish, just maybe they ought to spend more time for the gift of interpretation. Ha, ha, ha. That's kind of what he's saying. The reason that we believe that that's what he's saying is because, you know, throughout the book of Corinthians, as we've seen, Paul has used a lot of sarcasm when when he's trying to get a point across. Um, Sometimes, even back in in chapter 13, if you look at the beginning of, of chapter 13, um, he, he, he speaks throughout that. If he says in verse, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men, languages of men, and of angels, but not have love. See, he's speaking in, in kind of this sarcastic, uh, he's hyperbolic language. He says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging Symbol, And then he says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, do you think Paul understood all mysteries? If he did, he would be God. God says some things he's hidden from us to know. So he's using exaggeration here. He's, he's saying, hey, I don't have all mysteries, but even if I did, and even if I knew everything there was to know, if I have all knowledge, if I have all faith, even to move mountains... <laughs> But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. He's not saying that's fact. He's just using his way of illustration, even if I could do all these things. And so when he gets down to verse 13, he says, you know what? This is going on in your church. You have people speaking the real gift of tongues of different languages, and you're not doing it properly. You're just doing it to be seen by men. But then you have this pagan ecstatic stuff going on as well. And you know what? Their time might be better spent praying 
for the power to interpret what they're saying because they don't know what they're saying. Nobody else knows what they're saying. And if you talk to anybody in the modern-day charismatic movement who speaks in tongues, what they call it, they'll, and you ask them, what are you saying? They'll say, I don't know. It's a mystery. It's a mystery language. It's only between me and God. Well, what does it do for you if you don't even understand? What you, oh, it just, it's, it's emotional. It builds me up. See, it's an experience that they're focusing on. We're never, ever in Scripture called to focus on our fleshly experiences, ever, because they can deceive us, just like we're not called to focus on our emotions. They can deceive us. And so what Paul wants us to understand here is that the meaning of what he's saying here, he's, he's speaking with sarcasm. He says, you know, you guys that are speaking in this gibberish, maybe you ought to spend a little more time praying for the power to interpret. Why do you think he's saying that? Because at least if you could interpret your gibberish, it would benefit everybody. <laughs> but the point is you can't. Because what you're doing, basically, he sums it up, he, he's basically telling what you're doing is very selfish. It's not meant for the edification of the whole body. You're just standing up and going off in this thing, and, and everybody's looking at you and think it's interesting, but we don't benefit from it. So maybe you ought to pray to interpret this so the rest of the body can be benefited. And then Paul says, and if you, if you think that's kind of a misinterpretation, all you have to do is read that verse. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. How are the spiritual gifts given to us? How did we learn before? They're given to us by the will of who? But God, right? By the Holy Spirit. We don't get to look at a basket of spiritual gifts and say, hmm, I want that one, and I'll take that one, and I'll take this one. That's not how it works. God says, no, I'm going to give them to you. The Spirit of God gives them to us. If you doubt, go back to chapter 12, verse 11. He talks about all these gifts, and then he says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit. Who what? Who apportions to each one individually as he, the Spirit, wills. Not as the individual wills. You don't get to pick your spiritual gifts. That's what the Corinthians were trying to do. And then down at verse uh, 28 of the same chapter, chapter 14, sorry, back to chapter 14, it kind of proves my point because he says in verse 28, but if there is one to interpret, let each of them, but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. So, What's, what's that? We're going to get into that part, but what's he talking about? He's talking about a church service where somebody's standing up and speaking with the literal gift of languages. They have a real gift, and they stand up in a church service, and they start speaking in French, and nobody else speaks French. And what does he tell them? He says, listen, if you're going to do that, don't do it if you don't have anybody to interpret what you're saying. Paul doesn't say, well, you need to pray for interpretation. No. 
Because you don't pray for a spiritual gift, God gives it to them. And so because you're in a church, and if someone had the gift of interpretation, you would know that. If Ken Saragusa had the gift of interpretation, we would know that. Why? Because he would have interpreted the true gift of tongues when someone else got up to speak. Someone would speak the true gift of tongues. They would speak in French, and maybe two or three people need to hear the gospel. So they hear the gospel in French, and the rest of you are going, what did he just say? (laughs) And Ken goes, well, I have the gift of interpretation. Let me tell you. (laughs) And the gift of interpretation was a literal supernatural gift. Even though he doesn't know French, he's able to interpret French. (laughs) And he could make that translation for the rest of us. Then we say, oh, that's what he just said. See, that's the way it was to work. And so what Paul is saying here is that, you know what? Maybe you ought to pray for the power, put as much effort in praying for the power and interpret as you do speaking this gibberish. He's not saying you can even do that. He's using it kind of sarcastically once again. Because we know that we can't pray for gifts. Um, So the implied answer Really here, even down in verse 30, look at verse 30. He says, if a revelation is made to another sitting here, uh, let the first be silent. Actually, back in, I think it's 12. Is it 12.30? Yeah, 12.30. Where he says, do all possess gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all have the real gift of languages? Do all interpret? The answer is what? No. That's what makes your spiritual gift special. Because God gives it to you specifically. You don't get to pick and choose. And so there's no way that when Paul gets to chapter 14, he's telling them to pray for a gift. It's a sarcastic way of calling their attention to their problem. As a matter of fact, they say if there is no interpreter, even if you have the true gift, you shouldn't say anything. You just stay silent because you're not going to benefit the body of Christ. You're just going to benefit basically yourself. And so the true gift was limited that they couldn't even exercise it in the assembly of the church if the person who had the gift of interpretation wasn't there. So there's no way in verse 13 Paul is exhorting an individual to seek this gift of interpretation. Um, so basically he's just saying, you know what, while you're jabbering on and on and on, why don't you just pray something with intelligence? And then in verse 14, he continues, and it, it shows us here, basically, that, you know, you have to be praying for this interpretation, but this praying in tongues is mindless. It's mindless. And once again, notice it's the singular version of this word, which means the gibberish, the the untrue gift, I would call it, the, the, the false gift. He says, for if I pray in a tongue, Paul says, if I stand before you and I just gibber on, what happens? My spirit prays. Now, the charismatic people will tell you, oh, that means the Holy Spirit. No, it doesn't. It doesn't fit the context. If you look at that sentence, it would make no sense to mean the Holy Spirit. He says, for if I pray in gibberish, 
What happens? My spirit, that word spirit is pneuma. It can be, it can be translated breath, air. It can also be translated the Holy Spirit. But it's not so translated here. It can be translated wind. Some have even translated your inner feelings. <laughs> but what does he say? He says, if I pray in a, in a gibberish, in this ecstatic speech, I'm just blowing wind. My spirit prays. And they say, well, isn't the Holy Spirit our spirit? Yes, but it doesn't fit the context here because what does he say? The very next thing, but my mind is unfruitful. In the original language, you can't have my mind, meaning your brain, and then my spirit, meaning something else. They're connected. He's saying, if I'm praying in gibberish, my wind may be praying. There's air coming out of my mouth. But you know what? I don't even understand what I'm saying. My mind is unfruitful. It's not helping me at all. It gives me no understanding. And they admit that. They'll tell you that when they're praying in tongues. They don't know what they're saying. So the counterfeit gift is just this set-up emotional experience. It had no mental benefit whatsoever. I mean, you can search from cover to cover in the Bible, and I challenge you to show me one verse where it calls us and calls our mind to be unfruitful. In other words, just turn the mind off. Just let the emotions flow. Don't think about it. The Bible never tells you to do that, ever. Matter, it says things like bring every thought, what? Into captivity. It says you better have a good grip of what's going on upstairs in your brain. You don't just check out. We're never called to do that. That's why we teach the word of God. We don't believe this is some emotional experience here on Sunday mornings. We believe it's very much an educational experience. It's an intellectual experience. It's also a spiritual experience. Because what are we teaching? We're teaching the word of God, the living word of God. So Paul says, look, if if I pray in this gibberish, I'm just blowing air into the wind. I don't even understand what I'm saying, and neither will you. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus said this in verse 37. Matthew 22, verse 37. He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with what? All your mind. Mind. See, what was going on in this church was wrong. There's never a time when God wants us to function on pure emotion without understanding. That's when the craziness begins, in all honesty. Verse 15. He makes a requirement here for one's understanding. He says, well, what am I to do then? In other words, what am I concluding to this? What's my conclusion? He says, I will pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my wind. I'll pray with what comes out of my mouth. But I'll also pray with what? My mind also. So Paul says very clearly, when I speak to God, it's going to come from inside of me. I'm going to use my breath, my wind, so it can come out. 
but I'm also going to be using my mind, my brain. I think sometimes even when we as Christians go to prayer, and I've done this and I know you've done it because I've heard it, I think sometimes we check our brain out and we start talking in ways we would never talk normally to somebody. I've heard people, when they start praying, they would say, Father God, we're glad we're here today, Father God, and Father God, we thank you, Father God, for loving us, Father God. And I mean, can you imagine if someone came up to you and said, well, uh, you know, Hillary, how are you doing today, Hillary? Hillary, what's going on today, Hillary? Hillary, I mean, you would say, what's wrong with this person? Are they mad? But see, we as Christians do that all the time. God, prayer is just simply speaking with your creator, God. You don't have to put some big intonation in your voice. Oh, holy Father. You know, we don't need to do that. We need to be reverent. We need to address him how he needs to be addressed. I don't think we should go to prayer and say, hey, man, what's going on up there? You know, that, that would be just as wrong, right? We have to have some semblance of holiness when we go to prayer because we are speaking with the supreme creator, God. But at the same time, use our head, use our mind. We don't need to tell God a story when we pray. We've all done this. We go on this long, rampant, God already knows. He knows what you're going to say before you even say it. You don't think he knows what your situation is? See, we need to, we need to pray with our intelligence. We need to pray with our mind. Well, he also goes on here in the same verse. He says, what am I going to do? I'm going to pray with my spirit, but I'm also going to pray with my mind also. And then he says this, I will sing praise with my spirit. Why does he do this? Because in their festivals and when they would gather together, even in their pagan culture, music was a big part of it. And so part of this, in their pagan culture, they would get together and they would start speaking in these static utterances to music, and they would start singing in, quote, tongues. And by the way, that happens today in our churches, in modern-day charismatic churches. They sing in tongues. I don't know how, because they don't know what they're saying. It doesn't make any sense, but they do it. And what Paul is drawing out here, he says, look, whether you're speaking or whether you're singing, don't do it. It's it's, it's not going to help anybody. He says, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. That's why it's important to acknowledge the words which we sing. Um, Sometimes, you know, I'm exposed to certain songs, and, you know, some people write worship songs, you know, one after the other. It's hard to keep up. But some of them I'll hear, and I was like, wow, I really love that song. And then you start singing it, and then you think, well, maybe we'll incorporate that into the church. And then you start looking at the words, and you're like, well, maybe not. <laughs> it's got a catchy tune, you know. Um, one song recently, we, we even practiced it, and they just felt, no, I'm not going to do it, um, was, I like the song. I listen to it all the time. It's called Reckless Love. Speaking of God's reckless love is the idea. It's, it's a really catchy tune, and, and it has a lot of truth in it. 
the more I prayed about it, I thought, wait a minute. How can God do anything reckless? Especially when it comes to his love. So I told the worship team, I'm not there yet, but I said, I just replaced the word reckless in the lyrics, and I just said faithful. It fits perfectly. It's like, why wouldn't you put that word in there? Why would you call God reckless in any way? See, we have to be careful sometimes about small things like that. I'm not saying you can't listen to the song or whatever. It, 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 it edifies my spirit when I listen to it. But in my mind, I'm, I'm putting in, yeah, God, you're faithful. You're not reckless. And so what Paul wants us to understand is whether you're speaking, whether you're singing, whether you're praying, whatever, use your mind, your understanding. And, and they weren't doing that. They were just going off and, and having this mindless emotional session. I mean, when you pray in English, do you think God understands you as your native tongue? I think he probably does. I don't think you need to speak German to talk to God or French or Spanish or whatever. Whatever your native tongue is, when you speak, you, know, you don't need a special language that you don't even understand to talk to God. That's not biblical, and yet that's how they classify the modern gift of speaking in tongues in the charismatic movement. They'll say it's, well, it's the language of angels, because Paul says, you know, if I, even if I pray with the tongues of angels, once again, using kind of expression language to make a point, he wasn't saying he spoke in the language of angels, because every time I look in the Bible, when I see an, an angel speaking to someone, guess what? The person understands them. The angel isn't speaking some special dialect that has to be interpreted to the hearer. So the whole point is off. And by the way, that word sing here, just a side note in verse 15, it originally, in the original language, meant to play the harp. There's some churches today, even in, in, in the Christian faith, that believe that you can't have instruments in the worship service. Okay, a Christian church, some other ones, you know, real strict. They say, no, you can't have a piano, you can't have anything. It's just got to, everything's got to be a cappella, only voices, only voices. And they're very legalistic about it. There's a local church here that was that way, and, and one of our uh, guys that was helping us with worship was actually involved with that church. And, and I remember they used to have a worship service on Saturday night with all the instruments and everything. And then they take it all out because they couldn't have them on Sunday morning. It's just so crazy, right? I mean, people come up with this stuff. But see, here, this word sing literally meant to play the harp. And through the years, it meant came to mean to sing to the accompaniment of a harp, of an instrument. So clearly they had instruments in the New Testament church. They had instruments throughout the Old Testament. You can't say biblically that, you know what, you can't have any, we're not allowed to have any instruments in our church service. Um, you know, it's, it's just as bad as saying, oh, if you don't have a big choir and a pipe organ, you know, then it's not real worship either. You know, as long as it's honoring to the Lord, as it's done unto him, that's what's important. So we can use instruments. But he says, whether you're praying or singing, whatever, use your mind. Use your mind. And he says, I'm going to sing with my mind also. Now, we come to verse 16, and he begins to restrict some things. He says here, otherwise, if you don't tell, do what I'm telling you, 
otherwise if you give thanks with your spirit. In other words, if you're just praying in this unknown language and just moving air, how's anybody going to understand you? How can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen? And you know what this is like if you've ever been in a church in a foreign land where they don't speak the language that you speak, and you're sitting there and you're trying to be polite and you have no idea what the guy's saying. I mean, the good thing is, is pretty much amen is universal. So you hear somebody say hallelujah or amen, you can say, oh yeah, okay. But you don't even know what you're amening to. So it puts you in kind of a predicament. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, if, if you all came together and you just spoke in this gibberish, how is anybody going to know what's going on? That word outsider says anyone in the position of an outsider, idiotes in the original language, it means ignorant. It means someone who simply will not uh, understand the language that's being spoken. And even if you use the real gift and not the false gift, even if you use the real gift, there's a, maybe a person there that's in the place of ignorance about what you're saying, and he can't say amen because you're not speaking in a language that he understands. You say, why does he say this amen thing here? It's a very important thing in, in Hebrew. This was very important to even Jews. Um, it, it basically means, let it be so, or I agree with you. That's what you're saying when you say amen. Uh, a lot of times in churches today, if you know you have churches that are very uh, expressionist, they express themselves very much, and then you have other churches that hardly anybody expresses anything. Okay, and so if someone happens to say "Amen," you know everybody, who was that? What did they say? <laughs> no, I, I would welcome more amens. Amen. Amen. All right. So we're all on the same page. But in the Jewish synagogue, saying amen was very, very important to them for a lot of the wrong reasons. But um, a couple quotes from rabbis dealing with the word amen. He who says amen is greater than he who blesses. So it was a big deal in the synagogue when someone said amen. Another quote, whoever says amen to him, the gates of paradise are opened. Wow. If that'd be the case, we'd hear a lot more amens. And the third one, whoever says amen shortly, his days will be shortened. But whoever says amen distinctly and at length, his days shall be lengthened. So they had amen kind of maybe on a wrong pedestal, but it was a very important point. And so when Paul spoke this word to them, they completely understood what he was talking about. And it was almost like a contest in the synagogues when someone was speaking. If you've ever listened to the British Parliament or any of those, some of those foreign governments, you know, it's not like our Senate or our Congress. Um, you know, I mean, they're all talking at the same time. They're yelling at each other. Oh, sit out. They're like having a battle out on the floor. You know, it's just amazing. And you think, how do they get anything done? Well, they do. Uh, and see, that's what was going on in the early early time in the, in the synagogues, and even in the, in the early church, but it was used in a more uh, distinct way to honor the Lord and whoever was speaking and what they were saying. Um, 
So Paul's saying basically, if you just have a bunch of people speaking in gibberish, nobody can even agree what is happening. It's going to be confusing. And when we get together as a church, once again, our spiritual gifts are used for what? They're used for the benefit of us? No. They're used for the benefit of others. We're here to serve others. And so if you come at it from that point, whatever you do that leaves other people out within the church is is wrong. You should always do whatever you do within the church for the benefit of others. And then in verse 17 here, he says, basically, it, it can't edify others. He says, for you may be giving thanks well enough if you're, if you're speaking even with the true gift, but nobody understands you. You may be thinking, giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not built up. He's not built up. You might be doing a, a, a great job using your true gift of languages. And you could be saying, boy, I'm going to speak in, in, in German, and I'm going to tell God how grateful I am, but nobody else speaks German. If nobody else is edified, then it's best you be quiet or an interpreter be present. Otherwise, you've missed the point of coming together as the church. And we have to change our mindset when we gather as the church. We're not here for what we can get every week. If you come to church for what you're getting, you're coming for the wrong reason. You come for what you can give to others. Maybe somebody needs a kind word. Maybe somebody needs a word of prayer. Maybe somebody just needs a word of encouragement. But we get so grown accustomed to our little group and we tighter and tighter and, you know, nobody's going to break this group. That's, that's wrong. We should be looking for ways to minister to others. So Paul says that even if speaking in languages is done in public, it doesn't do any good unless someone there understands what you're saying. Now, with all that, look at what he says in verse 18. He doesn't want them to be so discouraged they just give up and go home. He says, I thank God that I speak in languages. Notice it's plural, tongues. It's the real gift of languages more than all of you. So, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with children, which they were, we'll find that out uh, next week. Sometimes when you're dealing with children and you say, look, I don't want you you know, coming home at 8 o'clock. I want you home by 7. Sometimes the kids throw a temper. Fine, I just won't go then. Right? They just go to the other extreme. It's like, no, you're not saying that. You're just saying, let's adjust the time you come home. And so they go to the other extreme. All right? And, and we do that as adults, too. You know, we, we go, we jump to the, the other extreme of what someone's trying to tell us. You know, maybe they're trying to help us. Maybe they're trying to build us up. Maybe they're trying to um, give us some thoughtful words about how we teach or what we do or whatever. And we walk away going, fine, I'm not even going to do anything anymore. See, that, that's wrong. And that's what Paul doesn't want them to fall into. So he says, I thank God that I speak in languages more than all of you. And, and Paul does the same thing here he did earlier in the chapter. Basically, he says, you know what, I've been kind of tough on you on this gift of, of tongues, on the subject of tongues, but I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I do believe it's a true gift. And I thank my God that I speak in languages more than all of you. Um, 
Paul had the true gift of tongues, no doubt. He was an apostle. And he exercised those gifts as he traveled around. That's, that's more so when he used it. If you ask, well, how did Paul use the gift of tongues in his life? I, you know, I, I guarantee you he didn't use it um, at home in his closet. No, he used it when he was out in a foreign land and he didn't know the language. That would be the purpose of it. He didn't use it as a private prayer language to his God. And I'm sure he didn't use it in Christian meetings to show off that he was spiritual. I'm sure that's not what he did. He didn't use it for his own benefit. He used it when he traveled to a place where people needed to hear the gospel that spoke a foreign language that he didn't know. And God would give him that supernatural ability to speak that language, that the hearers would hear the gospel and hear the glorious things of the Lord, whatever it might be. And they would look and go, wow, how is this guy speaking our language? He doesn't know it. And then he would speak the truths of God to them. Um, Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, so he had many occasions, many instances where he needed this gift. In fact, even as much as he spoke in other languages as he claims here, he still ranked that gift very low on the totem pole of spiritual gifts. He put prophecy far above the gift of languages. As a matter of fact, you're hard-pressed to find anywhere in Scripture where he even refers to using the gift of tongues, except here in verse 18. That's the only place. And he doesn't give an illustration of when he used it or how he used it. He didn't spend a lot of time saying, oh, other people should do this. No, he didn't do that because he knew that this was something that God gave him and God gives us our gifts individually according to his will. You don't seek them out. And so you can see how far removed we are from what Paul is teaching them about this gift from what goes on in modern-day charismatic churches where people are told that Unless you are baptized with the Spirit, with evidence of speaking in tongues, you're not a Christian. That's what they'll say. That's very common. It's not, a, it's not a, an odd belief in, that, in those circles at all. And all the focus is on that one gift. And Paul says, it's, it's not that important. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that it's ceased. We went over that before. There's no use for it. Today, And what's interesting, when, when people who use the gift of tongues today have missionaries and they need to go to a foreign land and they don't speak the language, guess what they have to do? They have to learn the language. See, it would make sense to me if the person who had the gift of tongues... They were going to Zimbabwe, and they had to speak that language, and God supernaturally gave them that gift. I, I, I would affirm that. That would be the right use of the proper gift. But see, they don't do that. They say, no, 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 the gift's for our prayer closet. It's for me and God. It's for nobody else. That's not the true 
gift. Well, the ranking of tongues here, verse 19, and with this we'll, we'll close. It says, nevertheless, in church, Paul says, I would rather speak five words. Now, remember, he's a preacher, right? If you get a preacher that only wants to speak five words, you know, you've got to be scratching your head, right? What's wrong with this guy? He says, I would rather speak five words with my mind with understanding, understanding what I'm saying and you understanding me in order to what? Instruct others, in order to edify others, to build others up. Then 10,000 words. Look at what it is. It's singular in a tongue. I would rather stand up before you, Paul is saying, and simply say, I have something to say and sit down (laughs) than stand before you and go blah, 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 blah. It makes no sense. That's what he's saying. That's his point. Now, what's interesting here, there's, it's not a ratio here. He's not saying, oh, five to 10,000. He's not saying that. That word 10,000 in the original language, myrios is the word. It's, it's basically the largest number in Greek mathematics for which there is a word. There's no word that would be bigger than that when you're trying to describe a number in the Greek language. In Revelation 5.11, it uses that word. It says, talking about the angels, it says, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands. Right? It's not even a number. Paul, once again, John, in that case, in Revelation, is using exaggerated Speech to drive his point home. And so in Greek, he just keeps repeating this word, myrioi, myrioi, because it represents the biggest number. It'd be like, I would rather speak to you all five words with my understanding than quintillion words in gibberish. Okay, I don't know if that's a number, but whatever. Uh, You get the point. There isn't any comparison. Why? Because nobody is going to learn anything if I stand before you and say things that you're not going to understand. And I want to be able to use my voice to teach others, not just exalt myself in some emotional experience. So how do we respond to all this? Once again, our our, our brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement, I'm I'm sure a vast majority of them are, are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. They're just confused. They've been taught wrongly. They're holding on to an experience that they no doubt have practiced. And it's difficult to just let go of an experience. You have to pray for them, pray that God would give them the proper understanding reason with them from the scriptures. Um, But what do we walk away with? We walk away with the idea that what should we be doing in church? We should be exalting and proclaiming and teaching the word of God. We always want that to be the case. It doesn't matter if it's here from the pulpit or if it's in Sunday school or if it's on a Wednesday night or a men's breakfast or even if it's your testimony when you're getting baptized. Right? What do we want you to do? We want you to include proclaiming the word of God. Secondly, when we come together, 
we come together to hear and understand God's word. That's why we're here. Um, I heard someone say <laughs> one time, <clears throat> well, I think maybe on, on Sunday morning we should just come together and just play music. We don't need a sermon. I mean, that didn't go well with me. <laughs> but you know what? Unfortunately, that's where a lot of churches have gone. If you, if you just break it down on a grid and say, okay, how much time do they give to teaching the Word of God? How much time do they give to uh, dramatic, you know, whatever dance or whatever? How much time do they give to other things going on in their service? A vast majority of churches today do not give the pastor the ability to have 45, 60 minutes to deal with the text. Their mentality is, well, people will get bored, they'll fall asleep. They'll... And you may. That's your problem. It's not mine. Right? I mean, we're teaching from the Word of God. We're, 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 we're speaking of the things of God here. If you're bored with it, then you're bored. I can't help you there. But we come together to hear and understand God's Word. Thirdly, we use our spiritual gifts to build up one another. And so if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, then, you know, come talk to us. We can help you with that. We can kind of point you in the right direction if you're interested in knowing more about that. But I guarantee you, if you're, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a spiritual gift. And it's really fun to understand what that is and then begin to practice that spiritual gift. And you see other people being blessed by God using you in the congregation. And then fourthly, never seek a selfish spiritual experience. Because you'll find it. I mean, you know... There's an enemy out there that's want, that wants us to focus on all the wrong things. You know, he wants us to focus on ourselves each and every day more than anybody else. But the Bible says you need to do the opposite. You need to look at others as more important than yourself. That doesn't come easy. That doesn't come automatically. It, it comes by surrendering moment by moment to what? To the Spirit of God. Asking God to fill you with the Spirit. Asking him to, to do what he wants you to do. You don't just wake up on autopilot every day and walk a perfect Christian life. That's why you need the church. That's why you need Sunday morning. That's why you need Wednesday night. That's why you need the women's Bible studies, the men's gatherings. You need all that. If you think you don't need it, then you're, you're, you're just deceived. Because no Christian is an island unto himself. And then, fifthly, never seek the emotional. Seek knowledge. Never seek the emotional experience. Seek knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that you can't have emotion in worship. I mean, there are sometimes, frankly, when we're playing a song at the piano, I can't sing. I'm on the verge of crying, and I don't want to cry in front of you all. But it's, my heart is touched by whatever we're singing or whatever. And I feel that lump in my throat, and I'm thinking, okay, I just got to keep playing the piano and let these guys do it because I just can't even talk at that point. Or sometimes we'll watch a certain video or something, and it just moves me. Okay, um, but you have to stop and you have to say, well, wait a minute, okay, I can't let my emotions just kind of run, run rampant here, right? You have to do things with understanding, and so you want to seek knowledge, not just the emotional. the emotional. The emotions will come because whenever you're studying God's Word, I think it's an emotional experience, at least it is for me. I mean, it's, it's the emotions of conviction, 
right? I mean, you're reading something, you're going, oh, that, <laughs> I got to teach on that. Man, I don't have no business teaching on that. You know, and it, it causes you to reflect on your own heart. It causes you to, to look at your own life. That's what we're called to do. So never seek the emotional. Seek, seek knowledge. And then sixthly, watch out for Satan's counterfeits. Be careful. There's a lot of people out there that, that say some things with truth, but a lot with error. And I've heard people who, uh, oh, I love to listen to so-and-so. And it's like, wow, do you know what they understand? Do you know what they teach? And they have no idea. They just like the way he looks or the tone of his voice or whatever. Um, you know, you have to be careful. You know, now it doesn't mean that everybody has to be, you know, pure as the, the wind-driven snow when it comes to theology before you listen to them. I listen to some programs every week on TV that I, I don't agree with probably half of what they believe. Maybe I enjoy the music that they, they sing or something, the old hymns or whatever it might be. I enjoy that. But, you know, and it's, it's good to a certain point, And then it's like, oh, why do you have to say that? <laughs> I got to turn it off or change the channel, you know. So there's, there's a lot of things. But you've got to be careful. You can't just, especially if you're on the Internet looking for things as far as theology goes, be very careful. There's a lot of people out there sowing a lot of false teachings. Uh, seventh, do all things with a clear mind that is open to God's truth. Do all things with a clear mind that is open to God's truth. And uh, I think that's where we have to really pray and ask the Spirit to, to do just that, to clear our minds and to give our hearts an open, open door to His truth. And the last thing, seek the true work of the Spirit. Seek the true work of the Spirit. Don't settle for that which is uh, counterfeit. Don't settle for that which is, is wrong. Uh, be diligent to, to be that Berean that the Bible speaks about. Don't just take my word for it. I mean, who am I? I'm just somebody who tries to study each week and bring something before you. But I say a lot of wrong things probably. You know, maybe it's a thought that gets messed up in my head and my words, by the time it comes out of my mouth, it's all discombobulated. You know, you know that. I mean, oh, wow, you, Pastor, you know you said this verse, and that, that verse doesn't even exist. <laughs> you know, those things happen. But what I'm saying is, is, is make sure that you're, you're holding people to account for what they're teaching you. Don't just, you know, well, it came from the vault, but it must be right. No, don't ever take that attitude. Do your own due diligence. Well, with that, we're going to uh, close in a prayer, and then um, we'll have a song and then maybe someone can go get the kids downstairs. And then um, we'll do our send-off for the McCafferty. So would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, uh, give us a clear understanding when it comes to the use of our own spiritual gifts. Help us to watch out for counterfeits. Help us to be focused on what our mind understands and acknowledges to be true in your word. Help us not to go outside of the bounds of your word. Lord, we pray this morning that whoever is in within hearing of, of these words, whether it's through the Internet or the stream or here this morning, Lord, I pray that um, their hearts would be focused, their eyes would be focused on Christ. Lord, he is the one who came and died, lived a perfect life, died a cruel death, took upon himself all of our sin paid the sin for all who would acknowledge him as their Savior. And Lord, if there's someone here today or through the 
stream that has yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. I pray today might be the day, Lord, where they cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got to acknowledge who you are before a holy God, and that's that you're a sinner. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a heart issue, and we all have that same issue going on. And so when we acknowledge our sinfulness before God, and then we have to turn from our sin to the Savior, who came and died and, and paid the price and rose victorious over sin and death. He loves you very much. He desires you to give you to give um, your life to Him. He is the sovereign God anyway, and so it makes sense that He knows everything about you from the beginning to the end. He created you, and He wants to have that fellowship with you. He wants to be part of your life. And I pray that even this morning you would look to him and ask him to save you. And as Christians, Lord, as we leave this place this today, Lord, I pray that we would not forget that we're called, as Michael reminded us in our worship time, our worship devotion, to be the salt and the light of the earth. And, Lord, that uh, we, we have a job to do here while we're here on earth. We don't just hang around till Jesus comes back. You've given us a task. You've given us a commission to go and... To the whole world and to preach the gospel, to make disciples. And Lord, I pray that we would take that seriously, even here locally. And Lord, personally, what are we doing to fulfill that commission that you've called us to? I pray that each Christian here today will acknowledge that call upon their life and that they will just evaluate their own, their own attempt to to be part of that and to serve you in that way. And so, Father, we thank you this morning for our time in your word. We pray that you would uh, bless us as we close with a song. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.